0: Welcome to season two of The Real nick sized Podcast. And this season, we are exploring the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia in the book of Revelation because we think it's a blueprint for the church. By understanding what Jesus is saying to these churches, we get a better picture of what church is meant to be today. Because, hey, history repeats itself when we don't learn from it. So together, let's ask better questions and learn from what Jesus is saying. Let's dig in. We are talking about Thyatira. The church in Thyatira, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29. I'm not going to read the whole thing this morning. I'm going to give you the highlights. Uh, This is the message from the Son of God whose eyes are like flames of fire. And he says, I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in these things. I want to pause right there. I want to stop. I want to consider something. We serve an incarnational God. We serve a God who is willing to be with us. And I'm not even sure if I've talked about this before on this podcast. But it doesn't matter. Because it's worth talking about over and over and over. We serve a God who stands with us. Sometimes in the Old Testament, it can feel like we serve two different gods. Not in the Old Testament, but when you compare the Old Testament to the New Testament. You know, we hear these sermons on Jesus, and then we look back at some of the scripture in the Old Testament, and we see a God who seems to be bent on war and destruction, and, and even a God who sometimes says that whole people groups should be killed. And we look at this Jesus who proclaims love, and we look at this God who proclaims war, and we say, well, how can they possibly be the same God? Hey, fair point, fair question. But they are the same God. You see, Anabaptists have um, an understanding of Scripture where we elevate the words of Jesus. So we would see Scripture as uh, the words of Jesus being more important than, say, the words of Moses. When we look at Jesus, we see that Jesus is the perfect image of God. And if we look at Hebrews 1 3, it says that the Son is the exact representation of his being. The exact representation. So if we are curious about who God is and what God looks like, if we want to know what what God would sound like, what God would say, how would he engage certain topics, would he touch people, would he heal people, would he love people, all we have to do is look to Jesus because Jesus is the perfect representation of God. The author of Hebrews tells us that. So when we look at the Old Testament then, we have to read those verses, those confusing verses, those verses that don't seem like they make sense, through a lens, and the lens is Jesus. Now, in Philippians, Paul writes and says that Jesus was on the same level as God. He was, he was God, and he chose to descend to become human, and not just human, but he came as an infant, as a baby, as um, you know the, the most um, naive and um, vulnerable baby. like there's nothing more vulnerable than a baby. And Jesus came as that. And then he grew up, and while he could have had all sorts of power and acclaim, Satan offered it to him. He chose not to take it. And then, you know, he is a perfect human being. He's a teacher. He's got followers, and he could have led a revolution or a revolt. But again, he chooses not to. In fact, he chooses to go to the cross as a criminal and die the death of a criminal on behalf of everyone. Jesus lowered himself as low as possible. Jesus is truly God with us. I mean, when the angel comes and tells Mary, you're pregnant, and when the baby is born, you should name him Emmanuel, the the name Emmanuel literally means God with us. Jesus is God with us. And if Jesus is the exact representation of God, then God has always been a God who is with us. Right? Right? So go back to Daniel 3 and just check out the story about Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. When King Nebuchadnezzar made this incredibly gigantic golden statue, I mean, ridiculously large golden statue, and said everybody has to bow down to it, these three guys said, no, ain't happening. And so what happens to them because they won't bow down? They get thrown into a furnace. The expectation is when they get thrown into the furnace, they'll die. In fact, the people who throw them into the furnace, they die because the furnace is so hot. And when the guards look in the furnace to see, yes, that they're dead and they have burned up, they look in and they see not only Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego still standing in the furnace, but they see a fourth figure with them. And scripture records that figure as one who looks like a son of God. You see, from the beginning, God is with us. Even in the garden, you have Adam and Eve in this perfect place that God has made for them. And who is with them? God. God's walking and talking with them. God's relating with them. God has a relationship with them. From God to Daniel to Jesus to Hebrews to Philippians, we have a God who is with us. He has always been with us. So when we read in this passage on Revelation about the church at Thyatira, he says, I know all the things you do. I've seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in all of these things. He's not just speaking out of the side of his mouth. God, Jesus, has actually been with them. Jesus stands with them in the midst of that which is hard. He knows what's happening in their lives because he is there. Now Now let's keep going to another part of this passage. The next part of the passage is really all about how this church has allowed a woman, and John, who writes the letter, uh, he says this woman is like a Jezebel, uh, to to teach, and to teach false things. And she has not just taught false things, but she's actually gathered a group of people with her who are false, and, and believing these false things. And Jesus says, "I gave you a chance to turn away from your sexual, or from your from your immorality, from your fornication, sexual sin, and and you know eating the food offered to idols. But because you haven't, then I'm going to punish you." Um. I just want to talk for a moment about idolatry, and you know, I understand firsthand that what I'm about to say isn't very popular. G.K. Beale, he's a scholar, he said those who followed Jezebel's teaching would ultimately become virtually identified with the idolatrous world system. Jezebel herself was a representative of this system. The system is later labeled Babylon. So later in the in the book of Revelation, the system that Jezebel is a representative of, the system that It is mainly about worshiping idols, allowing false things to get between you and God. That system is later called Babylon. And what is Babylon? Well, Kurt Willems, who is a Brother in Christ pastor in Seattle, he says, Babylon is any system of oppression that competes with the reality of God's movement toward New Jerusalem. What's New Jerusalem? Well, New Jerusalem is where God's story comes to an end. It's heaven. It's the city mentioned at the end of Revelation. It's where the followers of God will reside at the end times. It's a a city that doesn't even have a temple in it because everybody is united in worship. My friend and scholar Michael Herter says, as Babylon in Revelation likely represents the Roman Empire, any subsequent regime falls under John's critique. So, I'm not hating on America here. But if we're going to take this scripture really seriously, if we're going to take this idea of Babylon and empire really seriously, then we have to admit that we live in, well, I should say I, because I don't know where you're listening from. I live in the most powerful empire that is on the face of the planet today and the most powerful empire that has ever been on the face of the planet. And what's interesting is my experience in going through this, but also in talking with people since I've been through it myself, is that we seem to be more willing to do the hard work of looking at ourselves about our own idolatrous attitude than we are about uh, our willingness to look to see whether our patriotism, whether our flag, whether our pledge of allegiance is idolatrous. We're more willing to divulge things like a secret pornography addiction then we are willing to say, yes, I've got a problem with the way I love my country over my God. And I'm not saying that if you're a patriot or if you have an American flag on your vehicle that somehow you are in the wrong. By no means am I saying that. What I am saying is that it's possible that you are in the wrong. It's possible that your American flag is representing an idol in your life. It's possible that you love your country more than you love your God. And if we're not willing to ask that kind of a hard question, then it's probably telling us that there's an idol in our life. You see, in the Western world, we read Scripture upside down. We read it backwards, however you want to say it. Because when we read Scripture, we read stories about people like David and Goliath, and we picture ourselves as David. We picture ourselves as the underdog But if you're living in America, you haven't been the underdog in a really long time. Because as bad as it is in America for some people, you're still far better off than most of the rest of the world. And that's the honest truth. The honest truth is that we're a part of an empire. And scripture, the story of scripture, is written against the empire. Picture yourselves in the movie Star Wars. And you think you're Luke Skywalker getting back at the empire only to realize, actually, you're not Luke Skywalker, you're a stormtrooper. It's flip-flopped. We have more in common with Goliath than we do with David. We have more in common with Pharaoh and the Egyptians than we do with Moses. We have more in common with Rome than we realize. And we're unwilling to admit it. And because Rome is an example of Babylon and because Babylon is the thing that stands between God and his movement to Jerusalem, New Jerusalem, which is a place of peace, not war, a place of unity, not division, a place of love, not violence, a place of togetherness, not power over others. I mean, does anything I'm describing sound like the empire in which we live? No. Because the empire in which we live is one of the things that stands against God's movement toward New Jerusalem. If we're not willing to admit that, if we're not willing to engage that, then we're never going to be able to read Scripture appropriately, and we're never really going to be able to understand it well, and we're certainly never going to be able to engage the idols in our life that end up being things like our flag. Because God heart, God's heart breaks for things. God's heart breaks for things like abortion. He break, it breaks for the senseless killing of men and women in the armed services. It breaks for things like the homeless, for the orphan, for the widow, for the poor, for those who are mourning. God's heart breaks for these things. And as a country, our heart collectively seems to break. And we seem to get upset when an athlete kneels during the Pledge of Allegiance or during the National Anthem. Why is our heart not upset over the same stuff that God's heart is? Because perhaps there is an idol in our life that we need to engage. And that idol, make no mistake, has found its way into the American church. And if we don't deal with it, it will continue to grow.